Hi, Shannon Waller here and welcome to Team Success. Today I am very excited because I have an author whose work I completely respect and have been very inspired by. So this is Nir Al. So welcome Nir. I'm just delighted to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Shannon. I'm honored that you enjoyed the book so much. Thank you. Very much. So Nir is the author of both Hooked which is a really compelling book, which is how to build habit-forming products. And we'll just mention it's been the rave of Silicon Valley. And well, any hopefully ethical company (laughs) who wants to get, (laughs) you know, very good habits, helpful habits. And then most recently is Indistractable. And this is the book that has really grabbed my attention. I've listened to it avidly. And you have just some great coaching about how to be indistractable in our very distractible world. So I think that'll be probably the main focus of our conversation today. But before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about you, your background, and how you got to write Hooked and Indistractable. How did that happen? Let's see. So I wrote my first book, Hooked, about the psychology that companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp, all these companies that build these very habit-forming products, I really wanted to understand how they did what they did so that I could democratize those techniques so that we could build the kind of products and services that uh, any sort of company can use to build healthy habits in people's lives. Because I felt that you know, it shouldn't just be the Silicon Valley tech giants that know how to get people hooked. What if we could get people to uh, do all sorts of things that help them improve their lives with the same kind of engagement and veracity that people check these websites? And so that was really the goal of Hooked, and that's exactly what's happened. The book has been used by companies in pretty much every conceivable industry. Uh, Kahoot uses the, the, the Hooked model. It's the world's largest educational software company. They use the Hooked model to get kids hooked to, uh, to learning. Companies like uh, Fitbod use the Hooked model to get people hooked to exercise. Uh, the New York Times uses the Hooked model to get people hooked to engaging with local news. So there's all kinds of ways that we can use the information in uh, the book, Hooked, uh, to build healthy habits in people's lives. The book came out of a class that I taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business for many years, and then later I moved over to the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. And so it's a book that is based not only on the science of habit formation, but it's applied specifically to product design. So it's really written for business people who are building habit-forming products, as the subtitle of the book goes. But then, a year or so after I published Hooked, I found that in some ways I'd gotten hooked myself to some of the products that I describe in the book. So I wanted to understand more about the bad habits in our life. So if Hooked was about how do we build good habits, Indistractable is about how do we break the bad habits that sometimes we get distracted by, frankly. And so there was one particular instance in my own life that really made me reconsider my relationship with distraction. I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this beautiful day planned and we just had some daddy-daughter time together. And we had this book of activities in this book for dads and daughters. And there uh-huh. was this activity in the book, among many others, like, you know, make a paper airplane or a crossword puzzle. One of the activities in the book was to share with each other, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that prompt verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because in that moment, I decided that it was a good time to look at my phone and by the time I looked up for my device, I realized that I'd blown it. I'd missed this perfect daddy-daughter moment. 
And by the time I looked up, she had left the room. She went to go play with some toy outside. And I felt awful because it wasn't just the first time that this had happened. It happened not only when I was with my daughter on multiple occasions, it happened when I was at work and I would say I was going to work on that big project. And yet somehow I would find myself doing anything but. It would happen when I said I was going to exercise, but wouldn't. When I said I was going to eat healthfully, but didn't. And so I became fascinated by this, this problem that, that seems so basic of if we know what to do, why don't we just do it, right? And it turns out actually that this is not a new problem. And in fact, the philosopher Plato talked about this very same problem 2,500 years before the internet that people were complaining about distraction for at least the past 2,500 years. So it turns out it's actually not a problem of technology. It's not about the stuff outside of us. It's what's going on inside of us. The fact of the matter is that we no longer have the excuse of not knowing what to do. If you don't know how to lose weight, if you don't know how to be better at your job, if you don't know how to have a closer relationship with your kids, Google it, <laughs> buy a book, it's all there. We have more access to information than ever before. So no one with an internet connection can complain that they don't know what to do. We basically all know what to do. The problem is we don't know how to stop getting in our way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. So if I could have any superpower to answer this question with my daughter, the superpower I would most want is the power to be indistractable. And so I just became fascinated by this idea of, man, if I know what to do, what if I had the power to just do whatever it is that I said I was going to do, whether it was exercise when I say I would, or be fully present with people I love, or do the work I said I'm going to do, that would be a superpower, wouldn't it? And so that's yes. where I started studying for the past five years, the psychology behind how do we become indistractable. Oh, this is so powerful. We could talk for days about this, <laughs> I'm sure. So I want to go through the premises of how, you know, all the different constructs that you talk about, because you really do lay out a whole path. And I remember the hacks, I think of them as hacks, because they're just ways where you can set up your environment. And by your environment, I'm actually talking about your phone, right, <laughs> to distract you less. But let's talk about why it's so critical. And especially when we're recording this, we're you know, still in the pandemic. And so people are at home, a lot of them, non-essential workers. So what have you seen? Because this was a timely book when it came out last year, but it's probably just blown up in terms of being even more important because people are finding even more distractions, especially if they're in a room and not moving much. So tell us about that because it's, the relevance is just even expanded from when you published it. Yeah, that's right. When I published the book in September of 2019, I was talking about the onslaught of tech distractions, even though the book is not solely about tech. It turns out that distraction is a much deeper problem than just tech, that we can get distracted by all kinds of things. But, oh boy, then the world got even more distracting, right? <laughs> Suddenly now, with many people having to work from home to avoid corona, we found that we became even more distracted. And there are some very specific reasons why. Uh, I talk about in the book about the importance of internal triggers and how the root cause of distraction, it's not the external triggers. It's not the pings and dings. It's not what's happening outside of us. It's what's happening inside of us. Because the number one source of distraction, believe it or not, is not your phone. It's not your email. The number one source of distraction, the leading cause, is not the external triggers. It's the internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape mm. from. You see, what I discovered in this five years of research is a very important mantra that I want everyone to remember. Maybe write this down if you can. 
that time management is pain management. Okay. Time management is management and none of the tips and tricks and life hacks work. That's all gimmicks. Unless you first and foremost deal with this fact that the reason we get distracted, the reason we procrastinate, the reason we don't do what we say we're going to do, it's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. It's simply that you don't have the tools to deal with discomfort in a healthy way. So whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. We will always find a way to escape uncomfortable sensations if we do not have the tools in our toolkit to deal with those uncomfortable emotions in a healthy manner. And so that's the first place to start. So when you talk about what's changed in the world, well, the world is full of these potentially distracting internal triggers now. The world is more fearful. It's more uncertain. There's more stress and anxiety. And all of these are these uncomfortable emotions that we seek to escape from. And so whether we try and escape them by checking the news a hundred times a day or by drinking a little bit too much or whether it's, you know, watching too much Netflix or working too much. You know, a lot of people go into work to try and escape having to think about what's happening in the world. And that is a really important fact that I think many people miss is when they find themselves getting distracted, they blame busyness, they blame distraction, they blame a million different things. But the first place to start has to be mastering the internal triggers. This is really a life-changing practice and that so few people actually have the tools to deal with that emotional discomfort in a healthy rather than harmful way. So that's one big, big thing that's changed in the world is that the world's become suddenly a, a much more stressful place because of corona. And then two, I think another thing that's changed is that we don't have, for many of us who are working from home, we don't have the structures in place that we used to have that you know going to an office and you know taking our meetings there and having the constraints in our day for many people is maddening for most people in fact we need that structure we don't think about it you know many people before this would have dreamed to work from home and then once we start working from home we say oh what am i doing all day what day of the week is it i don't even remember i haven't gotten out of my pajamas and i haven't shaved and i i don't even know what day it is it's funny i say that because google is actually seeing record numbers of people searching for the term what day is it like typing into Google, what day is it? Because we can't keep track because we don't have those constraints on our day anymore. And it turns out that, you know, constraints really are freedom, even though it sounds like an oxymoron. When we have structure in our day, we actually get a lot more done. But when you don't have that structure, when we're not going to work, when we're not, you know, taking the kids to school, when we're not bound by some kind of schedule, we find that we actually get a lot less done. And so that's changed a lot in people's lives as well and made them more susceptible to distraction. All right. So this is a very timely topic. And I think, you know, the whole thing, time management is really pain management. That is, that's a mind blowing statement right there. And I think this sounds like a lifelong process. You know, this is kind of like self mastery is really what you're talking about. So it's not a small thing. You know, tech does add, I think, another dimension to it. But then we've got kids and we've got pings and we've got people wandering in other people's backgrounds. We've got so much that can pull our attention. So I'm excited to dive into how to become more indistractable. And you talk about indistractable workplace too, which would be pretty profound (laughs) because people get very distracted there. So there's just so many different places to go with this. So let's jump into, you know, your first thing is really mastering the internal triggers. So let's go into that. You know, you said people don't have the tools to know how to handle those uncomfortable emotions. So what are those uncomfortable emotions and what are some better ways to handle them? 
Yeah. Maybe before we dive into that, let's yeah. first define what do we mean by distraction? I think it's a really important yes. distinction to understand what are we even talking about when we talk about distraction? The best place to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you the opposite of distraction is of course, focus, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not exactly. The okay. opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, in fact, if you look at the origin of the word, is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things that you do with intent, things that lead you towards your values and help you become the person you can become. So that's traction, and the opposite of traction is distraction. So distraction is defined as any action that pulls us away from what we plan to do, anything that is not done with intent, anything that pulls us away from our values and the person we want to become. So this is a really, really important distinction because of two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. Okay, let me tell you what I used to do almost every single day when I got to my desk. I would sit down and I would say, okay, Now I'm going to work on that big project that I've been delaying. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to procrastinate. Here I go. I'm going to get to work. I'm going to get started right away. Nothing's going to stop me. But first, let me check email. First, let me do that one thing on my to-do list, right? How many of us do that? And we say, we justify this to ourselves and say, well, email is a work-related task, right? I got to check email. That's what I do. That's a productive thing to do, right? And we don't realize that that is actually the most dangerous form of distraction. If you are watching a YouTube video during working hours, you know, if you're putzing around on Candy Crush, that's pretty clearly a distraction. You are not doing what you're supposed to be doing at work if you're watching you know, fun videos or playing a video game at work, clearly. That's an obvious distraction. That's not the problem, folks. That is not our problem. Our problem is that we check email and Slack channels and do stupid things on our to-do list that don't really need to get done right now. And what we're doing is prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. And that is cancer for your productivity Mm. because you don't even realize it's happening. You justify, oh, let me just check this email. Let me just check this Slack channel. Let me just do that thing on my to-do list. And you don't get down to the really important stuff. And so I would procrastinate day after day, justifying it by saying, well, I was really productive. I checked email all day (laughs) and I didn't do the thing I said I was going to do. I got distracted. So any action can be a distraction. And conversely, any action can be traction. I'm not one of these chicken little tech critics that tells you that the sky is falling and that technology is melting your brain and it's addicting everyone, it's hijacking your mind. That is rubbish. That is stuff put out by the media, ironically, to get you to click on more articles on the web because people eat that stuff up. Okay, it is not scientifically true. Now, some people do get addicted to technology, just like some people get addicted to alcohol, but clearly not everyone is an alcoholic who has a glass of wine with dinner. So I am not here to tell you, like many people or some people in my field do, you know, some professor who doesn't even have a social media account saying, oh, stop using Facebook, stop checking email. Yeah, it's easy for you to do. (laughs) You don't need these tools. But for many of us, we can't stop using these tools. Our livelihood depends on it. And why should we? They're wonderful. As long as you use these tools on your schedule, not the tech companies. This is the difference. The difference between traction and distraction is one word. And that one word is forethought. 
Okay, forethought. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. I want you to watch Netflix. If you like playing video games, do it. You want to watch a football game? You want to play whatever it is you like to do with your time. I'm not going to tell you not to. If it's in accordance with your values and it's what you want to do with your time, enjoy it. We shouldn't have this misconception that these tools are somehow dangerous. No, as long as we use them with intent, they're fine. But it's all about planning in advance how we are going to spend our time. If it's something we plan to do, it's traction. If it's something that's not what we plan to do, it's instantly distraction. Okay, so now we've got traction, we've got distraction. Now, what moves us towards these actions? Well, we have external triggers and we have internal triggers. So external triggers, we talked about a little bit, those are the pings, dings, and rings, all the things in our environment that can lead us towards traction or distraction. And then we have our internal triggers, which is, as I said earlier, the leading cause of distraction. The leading cause of distraction is our inability to deal with discomfort in a healthy way. And I think part of the problem is, frankly, that I think the self-help industry has sold us a lie, which is that you're supposed to be happy all the time. I think about how many books have happy in the title, right? (laughs) Or like, you know, gurus that are selling us unlimited contentment. That's not real. That is not reality. And in fact, we should be thankful that we are not always happy. We should be thankful for discomfort. Discomfort tells us something and it moves us to improve the world. If you think about it, if there was ever a species, let's say a tribe of homo sapiens, of people who we're always happy. We're always contented all the time, right? Our ancestors probably killed and ate them because that would not be an evolutionarily beneficial trait. You want people who strive, who create, who invent, who make the world better. And you can only do that if you are dissatisfied. We need this disquietude to move us forward. The question is, What do we do with that discomfort? What do we do with that dissatisfaction? Do we try and escape it? Do we escape it with email when we don't know what else to do with our time at work? Do we escape it by watching the news because we're nervous about the world and we'd rather hear about someone else's life that we can't do anything about than having to think about what's going on in our own life? Do we escape it with a drink so that we just don't have to think about what's going on, right? Is that how we escape? Or instead of letting ourselves get distracted, Do we use that discomfort as rocket fuel to move us towards traction as opposed to distraction? This is so cool. So useful. So Mm -hmm. one of the tools at Strategic Coach is called the strategy circle. So the strategy circle, you have a goal and a result, but what you start with are the obstacles. It's everything in the way of achieving your goal. So you actually dive into the discomfort and not avoid it. A lot of Dan's tools It's another way of actually processing. I love that word disquietude. That's not a word I use often. But you're taking that discomfort and transforming it intentionally rather than distracting yourself. And I will never from now on, and I've listened to you and I've, you know, read stuff, but distraction, now I will never be able to hear it, see it differently. (laughs) That's very very cool. I like that. So yes, you're losing traction. And most of us, especially our audience who's listening, which are all entrepreneurial, you know, they're the strivers. And you actually just made me feel better because I'm often dissatisfied. So I feel better about that now. So thank you. The problem is that because people believe this myth that if you feel bad, that's bad. 
we tend to ruminate. You know, rumination is when we chew on a thought again and again and again. So what happens is people descend down this vicious cycle of, you know, I'm, I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy. Why am I not happy? What's wrong with me? And that becomes stressful in and of itself. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. And so the way we break that cycle is to realize, okay, this is part of the process. Yeah. This is part of being an entrepreneur. This is part of doing something hard that is challenging you to get better. So one of the techniques you asked me about, you know, how do we master internal triggers? There are three big techniques. One of them is to reimagine the internal trigger, to think about it differently, as opposed to thinking about it as a problem. So many people experience these internal triggers with contempt, right? So many people, when they get distracted, they fall into two categories. We have what we call the blamers and the shamers. The blamers, they blame things outside themselves. Ah, it's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's the news, it's the modern world, right? I hear that all the time, as if there was some like magical golden age when distraction didn't exist. Distraction's always been here. People complained about the television and the radio and rock and roll music and every, you know, comic books. They always said the same stuff about how distracting the world is. It's never going away. We can't do anything about that. So blaming stuff outside of ourselves doesn't make sense. The other end of the spectrum is what we call the shamers. The shamers don't blame things outside themselves. They shame themselves. And what does this sound like? Oh, you know what? I'm, I have such a short attention span. I'm not very good at this. There I go again, getting distracted. I always do that, right? They shame themselves. And what does that elicit? It elicits guilt and shame. And shame feels awful. Shame is an internal trigger that we seek to escape, guess what? With more distraction. So we don't want to be a blamer. We don't want to be a shamer. We want to be what's called a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility not for how they feel, Okay, this is a common misperception. You cannot control how you feel. You cannot control an urge. That is not in your control. Think about when you feel the urge to sneeze. Okay, if you feel the urge to sneeze, you don't control that urge. Once you have the urge to sneeze, it's there. <laughs> Same thing with the feeling. Once you feel something, you feel it. You don't have control over that feeling. What you do have control over is how you will respond to that urge. Hence the word responsibility right? How you respond is what makes you responsible for something. So when you feel the urge to sneeze, do you sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? Or do you take out a handkerchief and cover your face, right? Of course, you do the responsible thing. Same thing goes with our sensations. When you feel bored, stressed, anxious, uncertain, fatigued, lonely, what do you do in response? Do you do a harmful thing, an action that leads us towards distraction that you later regret? Or do you use that discomfort as rocket fuel to move you towards traction rather than distraction? A big part of it is getting curious rather than contemptuous about that sensation. So for example, you know, I started two companies. I know the entrepreneur life. Many times it sucks. <laughs> it is yes, hard, hard work. So part of it is having this conversation with yourself. You know, we, we see these entrepreneurs on magazine covers and, you know, they're always smiling and super happy, but that's the end result, right? That's not the means, that's the end. You know, when you're in the thick of it, it's really, really hard work. And it's how we deal with that discomfort so that when we feel stressed, do we talk to ourselves in a way that says, I got to get out of this, this is bad for me, or do we use it in a way that helps us propel to become better and do more. It's very, very important, the conversation that we have with ourselves when we feel these internal triggers. I love it. I was interviewing Dan yesterday for our newest book called Deep DOS Innovation. And he talked about that. He said, one of the things that 
when you have this mindset of using that discomfort and transforming it, which is familiar to me from coach, is you can be your own best friend, you know, and you can be a better friend to yourself. You know, that whole shaming thing, that's blaming yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not a productive emotion. And it actually, it's pretty low level as far as the consciousness goes. And it's just not going to get you anywhere. And like you said, it's going to push you further down that path. So actually looking at it with some grace would be my thing. But being curious rather than contemptuous is, first of all, I think it's just like being a little bit more dispassionate about it, you know, I think allows people to see a new path forward. But then you have a ton of strategies for how people can have a better, healthier way of handling that uncomfortable feeling. So let's let's dive into some of those. I mean, there is not time to talk about all of the cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So step one is really about mastering those internal triggers. And there's three big strategies, reimagining the trigger, reimagining the task, and reimagining your temperament. And so there's a chapter on each of those. But I think just for the sake of time, just kind of round out the four steps of the model. And I think something that is really misunderstood out there, and I think can help a lot of people right away, is step two, if you don't mind, if we kind of yeah, talked about that 100%. for a bit, around making time for traction, because this is something that I was really surprised to see that, you know, in the five years that I've interviewed hundreds of people, some of them very distracted, some of them who don't struggle with distraction. What was interesting was that the common trait among the people who didn't struggle with distraction, the people who I wanted to learn from, as well as what the literature says, is that it's not people who have a tremendous amount of willpower or self-control. That's not a common trait at all. The common trait is that these people have systems in place. And one of those systems is to keep a calendar, and not just any old calendar, but to keep a time-boxed calendar. This is an incredibly important technique, and it's not something I made up. It's been around for a long time. Thousands of peer-reviewed studies have found that this is an incredibly effective technique. The psychologists call it making an implementation intention. It's been around for decades, and despite the fact that it's been around for so long, people don't do it, and they still complain, and it's stupid because this will solve your problem. (laughs) And here's what you do. It's not rocket science. If you don't plan your day, somebody's gonna plan it for you, which means you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if I can look at your calendar and there's blank space there, there's white space in your calendar, don't complain about getting distracted because what did you get distracted from? right? You didn't plan what you wanted to do. And if it's not traction, it's distraction. So the only way to know what you got distracted from is to have something on your calendar, not just the productive stuff. I'm not saying, okay, every day you're a robot, you have to work all day long and, you know, increment your day by five minute increments. No, what I'm saying is you've got to plan your day according to your values. What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Okay, values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. So that means that for your values, you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time, right? There's a reason we call it paying attention. We pay attention, just like we pay with dollars and cents. We pay attention. So you're not going to stand on a street corner and anybody who wants money, you say, oh, here's my money. Here's a hundred. Here's a 20. Here's a five. Here, take my money. You don't just pay money to whoever wants it and you don't pay attention to whoever wants it. You pay people with money based on what you get in return, whether it serves you or you serve them. And the same goes with our time and attention, that if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. And unlike money, 
which some people have, you know, tons of, and some people have very little, every single person on earth, whether you're Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, you have the same 24 hours in a day, right? And yet we give it away to whoever wants it. And so this is a very important tactic that we have to sit down and plan our day according to our values, according to these three life domains, starting with you, your relationships, and then finally your work. This is really what this time boxing technique is about. And I show you how to do it, and not only for yourself, but also how to synchronize your schedule with the various stakeholders in your life, like your boss, your kids, your spouse. Very, very important technique that will change your life. And it's easy. It's not something that's a lot of work. It gets kind of a bad reputation because people see my calendar and they say, oh my God, that looks like so much work. It's 15 minutes a week. I'll actually give you a link that you can share. I built a free tool. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's completely free. A schedule maker tool that I'll give you the link for, for the show notes. And anyone can do this. And this 15 minute practice of just planning out your day is absolutely critical. It will change your life. I love it. Well, as you're talking, I'm smiling because I so wish you and I could just share calendars right now because if you see mine, <laughs> not a lot of open space there. <laughs> you know, and I would consider myself fairly distractible, actually, by I nature. Are. No, you, you read the book. You're indistractable. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I am. I'm bulletproof. But no, I consider myself distractible, you know, ADD, all the things, as are many entrepreneurs. But I also know how I work best. And it is not to leave a whole lot to chance. Like my schedule is probably more blocked than most people I know, except I'd love to see yours. <laughs> That'd be so fun. <laughs> but I totally get that. You know, in Coach, we've got our entrepreneurial time system, which some people will be familiar with. I'm talking about free folks and buffers. So different kind of circles, different rings here, but really a way to kind of block out what your focus and intention is. Now you still have to time block those days. So yes, you do. But I think that's a really powerful structure. And I know that Let's just talk about the benefits of doing this for a moment, because when you actually do follow the system that you talk about or even coach, your confidence changes so dramatically that the world's not in charge of your time. You actually are, right? Right. We talk about freedom of time as one of the key elements of having a self-managing company. And if you don't put those constraints around it, you have no freedom of time. Other people have all of your time. Yeah. When we look at the psychology literature, we know that there is a type of work that literally causes depression and anxiety disorders. Mm. And when I first saw this research, I asked myself, okay, what is this study going to tell me? What kind of work causes depression, anxiety? What would you think? I thought it would be depressing jobs, right? A mortician, a veterinarian who has to put down sick animals. I don't know, like a depressing job, right? Not at all. That it turns out the kind of work that leads to, not just correlated, but actually is a causal relationship with anxiety and depression disorder, are workplaces or types of work that have two factors. These two factors are high expectations coupled with low control, okay? High expectations and low control. Notice, if you have high expectations with high control, no problem. People flourish in those type of environments. But when you have high expectations and low control, that's when people are literally driven crazy. Okay, that literally makes people ill with depression, anxiety disorder. Now, I'm guessing that if there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening to the sound of my voice right now, they're saying, oh my God, that is exactly my work. (laughs) Because entrepreneurship is a lot about high expectations with low control. But the reason I tell you this is because, look, You cannot control outputs, okay? You can't control outputs, which is why I hate to-do lists. People don't understand how terrible the to-do list is for your productivity. When you live your life 
and your time schedule based on a to-do list, you are doing yourself a huge disservice because study after study, all you have to do is look at the psychology literature. We are horrible at predicting how long a task takes us to finish, right? We are really bad at predicting output. Not just you, not just me, everyone is bad at it, okay? Study after study has shown this. And yet when we judge ourselves by these stupid to-do lists where it's just output, 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 finish, 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 without considering the input, right? Every output needs input. Well, what's our input as entrepreneurs, as knowledge workers? Two things, time and attention. But if you don't have the input, you can't get the output, which is why we need to stop living our life according to a to-do list and rather adopt a system where we can control one thing. You can't control the output, but you can always control the input. You can always control time and attention, which gives you that kind of psychological certainty that is required for these high expectation roles that so many people have out there. Well, as you're talking, I'm thinking high expectation, low control. That describes so many team members working with entrepreneurs. <laughs> Yeah, that's so, <laughs> as you're talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, entrepreneurs experience that. But then also, especially if they're sort of, well, I, I know their Colby profile, but it's like you're, they're kind of like pinging into their yeah. team members' offices and they run in and they interrupt and it's high expectations, usually urgent, you know, with yep. a, a fair degree of accuracy and specificity and quality. And yet there's zero predictability. And that is how to drive your team crazy. And that is the that, word that team right. members have used. And I've been doing, coaching team members for 25 years. We've moved the needle a tiny bit, but you know, <laughs> that is an issue out there. So that's fascinating research to back up, like how to literally drive people crazy yeah. is to operate that way. And this is why this schedule syncing, I just mentioned it very briefly, but this is a life-changing practice for your team. Here's how schedule syncing works. You know, the book, by the way, you probably guessed by now, I'm a contrarian by nature. And when I saw so many, you know, there's so much folk psychology out there that is just dead wrong, like the to-do list right? You know, the research is pretty good that to-do lists suck. Not to-do lists, all to-do lists, but living your life, scheduling your life based on to-do lists backfires. And there's lots of reasons why. But another piece of folk psychology out there that I think a lot of people don't realize is really impeding our productivity and our progress is this idea that, you know, we have to interrupt people all the time because, you know, clients demand it and we have an international team. I mean, I've heard every excuse in the book out there. And one of the things that can really change your life as well as the life of your colleagues is this schedule syncing process where you sit down once a week and you do a synchronization of your calendars. And it literally takes 10 minutes a week. You could do this, by the way, with your colleagues. You can do it if you're managing up. If you have a boss, you can do this. You can give your employees my book and show them how to do it so that you don't feel like you're micromanaging them. You can show them exactly how to do this technique. The problem is, you know, another bit of folk psychology that we hear a lot that's not true is that if you want to have less distraction in your life, you need to learn how to say no right? We've all heard that. Well, that's nice, but who's going to go to their boss, the person who pays their bills, and is going to say, um, no, I don't want to do that. That's stupid advice. You're going to get fired, right? That is terrible advice. Instead of saying no to your boss, you simply show them your schedule. Because now, if you have a time box calendar, you have an artifact. You have something you can show them. You can say, hey, look, boss, here's my schedule, okay? From nine to six or whatever your working hours are, here's how I'm going to split my day. I'm going to work on this project and this project. Here's my day. Now, 
here's what I have time for in my schedule. You can see it right there in front of you. Now you see this other piece of paper over here? This other piece of paper, I wrote down all the things that I don't know where to put in my schedule. Can you help me reprioritize? That's what a schedule sync is. It's a reprioritization. You know, if you work for someone, if you have a boss, your boss will worship the ground you walk on if you do this. <laughs> because for most of the day, you know if you manage people, we don't know what our employees are doing. Yeah. And we're constantly wondering, bosses are kind of wondering, wait a minute, are, do they need more to do? Are they, do they have too much to do? We don't know, right? So by doing a weekly schedule sync that literally takes 10 minutes to do and asking your boss or sitting down with your colleagues and say, okay, help me reprioritize. Is there something here that's less important or more important that I should move around in my schedule? You're not the one saying no. Your boss is the one saying no. And that schedule syncing process is incredibly beneficial. It's great for giving people more agency and control over their day so you're not driving them crazy and you're setting expectations. For example, you know, if you are the boss, by saying, look, here are my office hours. If there's something you need me for, if it's you know, house on fire, absolutely you must interrupt me kind of thing. Okay, that happens. But that, maybe that happens you know, once a month perhaps, really if it's an emergency that can't wait for 30 minutes. Other than that, look, I'm going to be in my office with my door open from four to six are my office hours. You know, hold the questions, if you would, please, and come in then. And people say, oh, I can't do that. You know, people need me. I need to have an open door all the time. No, you don't. In fact, if you do this, if you ask people, just write down your questions on a piece of paper and come in during these hours, okay? Here are my office hours. What you will find is, that most of those questions, they can answer themselves if you give them a chance because people form a habit of reflexively not having to use their brains. Remember, thinking takes energy. Thinking takes work. And people hate thinking if they don't have to. And so we've all seen this. If you've hired employees, you know that employee who, instead of thinking, is saying, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Whereas if you give them a little time to marinate, a little time to think about the problem and say, okay, I'm available from this hour to this hour. If you can't figure it out on your own, come to me and I'll help you get stuff out of your way. You're giving them an incentive to think for themselves because they know they have to wait a little bit of time. Well, and if you're always taking care of that need, if you're always answering their question or you know, letting them interrupt, then you're actually training them that that's the quickest way to get the answer rather than them figuring out for themselves. And given That's that right. one of the things we like to coach people to have is a self-managing company, you will never have that because you're the go-to. People are smart. They will figure it out. Sometimes they don't want to be wrong. But I think just limiting that constraint again is a really powerful structure. The same with email. You know, so many people, they shoot off an email to get that to do off their plate and make it somebody else's problem, <laughs> right? It's true. So people who have read Indistractable tell me that they reduce the amount of time they spend on email by up to 90%, 9-0, using some of the techniques in the book. I mean, email is one of the most distracting technologies we could possibly use, way more distracting than Facebook or YouTube. It's email, right? It's a bane of our existence these days. And there's some very simple things that we can do to reduce the time we spend on it. Yes, I clearly need to listen to that chapter again. <laughs> that would be good. So we've talked about defining a distraction, which is fabulous. We talked about mastering internal triggers and we've talked about making time for traction. What's the next phase? What's the next step that someone needs to do yeah. to so the figure this out? Sure, is hacking back the external triggers. So hacking back the external triggers is dealing with, of course, our phones and our computers. That's kindergarten stuff. Anybody can turn off notifications. I don't spend that much time on those things. I talk about the other things that we don't think about as distractions, but can be huge time sucks. Meetings. Oh my God, how much time do we spend in meetings that you and I both know most meetings 
are called by people who just want to hear themselves think out loud. And again, thinking is hard work. I get it. But for many people, it's intellectual laziness, right? Let me call a meeting so we can discuss this problem so I don't have to think about it for myself. And so that's got to stop, especially in these days when we're working from home. It's so easy now. Just invite everybody to the Zoom meeting. We'll have 20 people on the Zoom meeting and it takes up so much time. It's such a distraction. And so there's some rules we have to follow around how do we make sure that we're not spending all day in meetings? How do we make sure we're not spending all day in group chat? Oh my goodness, how much time are people spending on Slack? And it's a huge source of distraction. So how do we hack back all those external triggers as well? How do we hack back the external trigger of our kids? right? If you work from home, you know that kids can be a huge source of distraction now that we're supposed to be homeschool teachers as well. What do we do about that? Well, there's some very simple tactics that we can use that we can hack back these external triggers, whether it's meeting, group chat, your kids, email, phone, computer. I show you step-by-step how to hack back all those external triggers. So just because I don't want to totally tease people, but share one of the ones for either email or chat, because I think, you know, email I've been finding overwhelming and I'm, I had it with help relatively contained yeah. since this has happened. My email has exploded and it's driving yeah. me batty. It's I wish I could me. show you my email inbox. I get a lot of email. And right I'm now, so, I'm so jealous. Two messages in my email inbox right now. <laughs> okay, I'm totally jealous now. So, what's one hack that people can do in terms of email or chat? We have to understand the math behind email. Okay, so remember TNT. So, TNT, the reason I like this equation is because TNT reminds you that email can explode a potentially productive day. <laughs> email, you know, people can waste so much time on it. So, TNT stands for the big T equals little n and little t. So the big T stands for total time. Total time on email equals the number of messages you get times the time spent per email. Okay. So what you have to do is essentially there's, it's a math problem. So you have to figure out how do I reduce the number of messages I get or I respond to and how do I reduce the time spent per message? It's as simple as that. Now, The best thing you can do, there's lots and lots of techniques I talk about in the book, but the best thing you can do, and I'm not a proponent of inbox zero per se. I think it's nice as a result. It shouldn't be the goal because what many people do for inbox zero, they make this critical error of thinking, well, if I just respond to everybody, that gets me to inbox zero. But that's inbox zero for like five minutes because what happens if you send lots of messages you get lots of messages, <laughs> duh. So if you're just responding to everyone, you're gonna get a tsunami back. So the idea here is to be very thoughtful about when we reply. So the problem with email, and this is what I talked about a little bit in my first book, Hooked, is that emails are rife with what we call variable rewards. Variable rewards comes from Skinnerian psychology that when there's an intermittent reinforcement, when there's uncertainty around something, it becomes more engaging. And so with email, email is the mother of habit-forming technology because there's so many variable rewards, like a slot machine, right? What's in the email? What does it say? Is it good news? Is it bad news? When does it need a reply? There's all these uncertainties about an email. Is it a promotion? Is it bad news? You know, who knows? Did I get a sale? Did I not? All this variability, just like a slot machine, which is why we check it again and again and again. When we're feeling bored, anxious, uncertain, we turn to email habitually. So what you have to do instead, what time studies reveal is the time you waste on email is actually not the replying, okay? It's not even the checking, it's the rechecking. The rechecking is the problem. Most people touch each email way too many times. Why? Because they open it, 
close it, open it again, close it, open it again. They do this three or four times per email. It's a huge time waster. Instead, here's what you have to do. Every time you get an email, you have to ask yourself one question. This is the most important question. It's the only thing that matters when you see an email. When does it need a reply? Yes. When does it need a reply? Okay. Now, there's only going to be a few possible answers to that question. Either never, so delete it. Right now, oh my God, your house is on fire. You have to respond to this right away. That should not happen often. That's 1% of emails, hopefully even less, right? Realistically, like absolutely right now, you know, imagine you're with your kid or you're in a, doing a big project or you're giving a big presentation. That is the kind of email that stops the presentation. I have to respond to this right now. Very, very, very rare. Okay, the vast majority of emails are gonna fall into two categories. Things that need to reply today, sometime today, and emails that need to reply sometime this week, okay? Now, what I want you to do every time you get an email is that you only touch each email twice. The first time, you're going to label it. And if you don't know how to use labels, just Google it. You can do it on Microsoft Office or Gmail. Everybody has a labeling system. You're not going to label based on subject. Subject does not matter, okay? The search functionality today is so good, you do not need to label things on subject. You label it based on the answer to that question, when does it need a reply? If it needs a reply tonight, you label it tonight or today. I do this tonight, so that's what's in my mind, but you label it as today. If it needs a reply this week, you label it as this week. And then, back to step two, you have time in your calendar for just the urgent messages every day that need to be replied to today. So for the average person, that's going to be about an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours, doesn't matter. It depends on what type of job you do but you're only replying to those emails. That's the second time you check the email. The first time was to label it. The second time was to reply to it. Only reply to the emails that need to be replied to today. Statistically, that's about 20% of the average knowledge worker's email actually need to reply today, okay? The other 80%, it turns out, do not need to be replied to urgently. But what people do when they have this goal of inbox zero is they reply to the 80% of emails that don't need a reply right away. So they just keep playing this silly ping pong game of I send it to you, you send it to me. I send it to you, you send it to me. And we waste cumulatively in a week's time for a non-urgent email way too much time. So you're only going to look at the emails you need to reply to today, 20% of your emails. Then you have time on your calendar once a week to go through all those emails that were not urgent but need to reply to within a week span. Okay. So in my calendar, I call it message Mondays. Message Mondays, I have a big old plot of time, four hours typically, where I sit down and I go through all those messages that need to be replied to this week. Now, here's where the magic happens. I know some people are saying, well, that's what's the big secret here? I don't get it. Like, I would have to reply to those emails anyway. I'm just pushing it aside for later, aren't I? No. Here's where the Harry Potter magic happens, okay? It turns out when you let those non-urgent messages wait, when you let them simmer, Turns out about 50% of those emails don't need replies. How does that happen? Because people figure out their own stuff. Something that was really important five days ago is actually less important than this other important thing. And that old issue doesn't need a reply. And if you had replied to it the day you got it, you would have wasted that time as opposed to doing something actually important with your time. 
So that's a killer technique that will save you hours and hours of time is labeling each email by when it needs a reply, putting that time in your calendar. By the way, this technique does not work unless you follow step one and step two first of actually making time in your day and making sure that you have the tools of your disposal so you're not checking email impulsively to figure out you know, how to deal with your emotions, right? That you have to do step one and step two first. But after you've done those two, this is what you do next. Oh my gosh, I love that. All right, we've only got a couple minutes left. So what else do people need to know? I mean, I feel like, again, we could talk for days. Yeah. So what else do people need to know about being indistractable in teams? What's your advice? What's your coaching? You know, I think just because we have only a couple minutes left, I think the big message I want to leave everyone with is that we have more power than we think that we absolutely can become indistractable. We can get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us. And the way we do that is with forethought. I think if you summarize the book in one mantra, it would be this, that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That for all these distractions, it's an impulse control problem. Again, it's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you. For the vast majority of people, it's just an impulse control problem. But you know, our species can do something that no other animal on the face of the earth can do, which is we can see into the future. We can predict what is going to happen with greater fidelity than any other animal on the face of the earth. Because if you wait till the last minute, right, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on the way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, you're going to reach for it in the morning when you wake up before you even kiss your loved one and say good morning. Because you've already lost, right? You didn't plan ahead. They got you. And so it's not about willpower. It's not about self-control. It's about forethought. It's about planning today to make sure we don't get distracted tomorrow. And that's what becoming indistractable is all about. I love it. I love it. And stage four is, you should say stage four, prevent sure, distraction. Prevent distraction facts. Packs. Okay, you know what? I can't actually read my writing, just saying. <laughs> and there's a whole other section about that. So, Nir, thank you, because I feel like you've provided studies and background and strategies and tools, which we're going to give reference notes to in a moment, that really supports what everyone listening is up to, which is having much, much greater control over their life and not blaming themselves, not shaming themselves. So there's so much in your thinking that is completely in alignment with what we're up to. So it is such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much for A, doing the writing, <laughs> you know, coaching people on how to get hooked and then recognizing that you were getting hooked too and then researching and writing Indistractable because this is a major issue and, and there is so much guilt and blame and shame about that. And I feel like giving people another mindset and tools to help them out of that is something that's going to make everyone's life better. That's part of my mission. So thank you very much for that. So how can people reach you? How can they access all those amazing tools that you talked about? How can people learn more and obviously buy the book? Sure. Yeah. So you can buy the book wherever books are sold. So my first book is called Hooked. My second book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And if you go to my blog, nearandfar.com, near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So that's N-I-R-and-far.com. There's actually a complimentary 80-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the final edition of the book. It was too big, so we decided to give it away for free. Anybody can get it. It's at nearandfar.com. And it'll guide you along your journey to becoming indistractable, whether you get the book or not. And and thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be here. Oh, this was such a treat. I feel like we could keep talking, but oh well. All right, Nira, thank you so much. And just, you're in Singapore. I'm in Toronto. 
appreciate Zoom <laughs> for allowing this to happen. Um, wish you and your family all the very best of health. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stay well. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.